Hello and welcome to this special classics podcast from Blackwell Online. My name is George Miller and my guest today is Christopher Kelly. Earlier in the year I visited Christopher in Cambridge where he teaches classics at Corpus Christi. I've held back my interview with him till now because his book Attila the Hun, Barbarian Terror and the Fall of the Roman Empire has only just been published in paperback. As the subtitle indicates, the book is not so much a biography of Attila, that in any case would be next to impossible, as material on him is so scarce, but rather an examination of the part he and the marauding Huns played in the downfall of Rome. And already, by referring to them as marauding, I've fallen into the trap of Hun stereotyping. While they did do more than their fair share of rampaging, as you'll hear, Attila impressed at least one Roman commentator with his civilization and even his command of Latin. So, as Christopher's book makes clear, the story of Attila and the Huns is both more complicated and more interesting than the conventional stereotypes suggest. I began my conversation with him by asking him about the Battle of Adrianople, which took place in modern-day Turkey in AD 378. This clash between Romans and Goths is a curtain-raiser in his book. It was a confrontation which portended dark days ahead for the Roman Empire. The Battle of Adrianople, which takes place in 378 near the modern town of Edine, which is about two hours out from Istanbul, is the most important military engagement of the 4th century. It's an engagement between Roman legions and several tens of thousands of Goths who two years before had crossed the Rhine fleeing from Hun penetration around the Black Sea region. It's the most cataclysmic and thorough defeat suffered by the Roman army since the Battle of Cannae when they were famously defeated by the Carthaginian general Hannibal. So either side of empire in five centuries, this is the largest military disaster suffered by the Roman Empire. And it exposes in brutal form the weaknesses that the empire will face over the next 60 to 70 years. So it exposes the problems with groups on the frontier, Goths and Huns, ever pressing for land or booty from the frontier provinces of the empire. It exposes the strategic problems that the empire faces, not only protecting its northern frontiers against Goths and Huns, but its eastern frontier against an increasingly powerful Persian empire. It shows an empire at full military stretch. In a sense, there aren't enough military resources to guard all the frontiers of the empire in the 4th century. And it shows something of the disintegration of the empire, particularly the split into the eastern half with its capital at Constantinople and the west no longer ruled from Rome but from Ravenna. And it's the curtain raiser to the fall of the west as the empire splits. The west, the much weaker half, begins more rapidly to fragment and the east survives. But the east survives, as I argue, at the cost of the fall of the west. And that disaster at Adrianople, the defeat of Roman legions by an intrusive foreign group, in a sense, starts that story moving. In the book, there are various warring peoples. You mentioned the Goths, there are the Vandals, the Alans. But is there a, is there a, is there a case 
or evidence to suggest that the Huns were were an enemy of, of a different type, if you like, that they presented a threat which was, you know, more acute than any of the other threats that the Romans were facing. It's difficult to argue that the Huns were more militarily effective than the other groups. In fact, the Huns' record in straight-on battles with the Roman Empire is not as impressive as the other groups. On the other hand, the Huns clearly do not seek land within the Roman Empire. They're not interested in settling within the Roman borders. Their concentration is as predatory plunderers. So in that sense, they're more frightening. And I think that what makes the Huns an effective force is the shrewd leadership and generalship of Attila. Attila is acute and subtle in playing the risks. He knows when to attack and perhaps, which is the most important for any general, he knows when to withdraw. And this repeated raiding, punching into Roman territory and then vanishing distinguishes the Huns from the other groups who are interested in migrating and ultimately settling within the Roman Empire. And it also makes, I think, the Huns a more difficult enemy ever to pin down or to defeat. When the going gets tough, the Huns very swiftly retreat. So in some senses, they never achieve the military victory of the Goths at Adrianople. On the other hand, they're a much more effective force for plundering and raiding, for sacking cities and seizing prisoners than the other groups that the Romans face. How easy is it to train your lens on Attila himself as a man? Fortunately, for understanding Attila as a man, we have one very precious source, and that is the account by Priscus of Panium, sent as an ambassador to Attila the Hun in the late 440s. And Priscus's account of his eyewitness face-to-face meeting with Attila is preserved. Without that account, which survives in a series of rather battered fragments in 9th and 10th century manuscripts, without that account, we would only have second-hand versions of Attila. We can stand with Priscus and look Attila in the eye and get some very detailed sense of his diplomatic subtlety, of his ability to play Roman politics, of his understanding of the Roman Empire and how its power works. Without Priscus, we would not be able to see Attila with any clarity. There's also, in his writing, as I, as I took it from your book, this theme of perhaps the Roman Empire in itself being flawed, and in some way Attila being there to sort of show up or exploit, or even from a theological point of view, to act as the scourge of, of God. Can you say something about, about how, those, how those themes sort of relate? When Priscus crossed the Danube to meet Attila, he was expecting, like any educated man from the classical world, to meet a mindless, ill-educated barbarian who would be crude and brutal in every aspect. The excitement and the interest of Priscus's account is that that is precisely what he does not find. And the surprise of Priscus's version of Attila is that he presents 
a much more civilized, a much more nuanced, a much more subtle and a much more shrewd ruler than his stereotypes would have led him to believe. And Priscus goes further and wonders whether some of the virtues that Attila demonstrates, his personal restraint, his frugality, his simple court, his lack of reliance on eunuchs and subordinates, in some ways makes him a more virtuous ruler than Theodosius II in Constantinople. Let's be clear, it's not for any moment that Priscus was supporting the Huns or thought that the Roman Empire should not continue to rule the Mediterranean. This was an argument about virtue and how kings and rulers should behave. And Priscus left the court of Attila wondering whether the Roman Empire would be stronger in its battle against barbarians if Roman emperors embraced some of the virtues that he had seen in Attila. He certainly thought that Attila's success against the Roman Empire was as a result of his moral and self-restraint. That kind of view of Attila as having a moral purpose is one also reflected in Christian texts. And it's the origin, in some ways, of the most famous tag for Attila as the scourge of God. And it's clear that particularly as Attila moves into France, the stories that are told about saints' lives and miracles as he moves across with the Huns devastating France, there's a sense that in some way Attila is the scourge of God in the sense that he's been sent by God to punish the people and cities of France for being sinful, for not being Christian for not showing Christian virtues, that Attila is God's weapon of destruction and punishment. That gives Attila a fairly bad press, of course, as a destructive element, but it also, and this I found fascinating, fits Attila into a Christian story, that Attila and the Huns, far from being foreign or alien, are absorbed into the history of a Christian Europe and the disasters that the Roman Empire suffer are explained as a direct result of the citizens of the Roman Empire's failure to behave as righteous and upright Christians. To what extent is it possible to say what part Attila played in the downfall of the Roman Empire? There's no simple answer to that question. Although the book is focused on Attila, it resists very strongly imagining that one man destroyed or saved the Roman Empire. It attempts to offer a more complex explanation of the fall of the empire in the West, but I think it's also clear that the Huns play a key role in that fall both because they expose the fragility of the frontiers of the empire. They are, after all, the only enemy that the empire face who attack both the east and the west within a period of a decade. And I think by their involvement in western internal politics, where they fight on occasions on the Roman side, sometimes 
against the Goths, sometimes with other Goths. They are an integral part of the confused and belligerent politics of the West in the 5th century. In a sense, without the Huns, it may be one can see that the history of the West would have taken a different course. It may be that the Roman Empire would have been able to hold on to France and better defend northern Italy. It may be that without the need to defend the Huns, they may have been able to secure North Africa and defeat the Vandals. In a sense, the Huns are the last element on the top of the great and difficult pile of concerns that face the Western Empire. And the presence of the Huns prevent the empire dealing with a number of its other crises. So in that sense, the Huns' presence are absolutely key to the decline and fall of the empire in the West. And the nature of their non-empire building and their sort of parasitic nature on the Roman Empire, do you think that was a critical factor in if you like, sort of pushing things over the edge? Well, they're, they're parasitic in the sense of really operating as a ruling elite, conquering Goths north of the Rhine and Danube. Their empire is not like a Roman empire. It's not about roads and capitals and tax collection and all the kind of intrusive administrative nature that we think of empires. It's a very light touch. It yokes the elites the large landowners in any given territory and extracts their wealth. I think it's very important that the Huns really don't seem to have been interested in carrying that project into the Roman Empire. That distinguishes them significantly from Goths and Vandals and I think it gives them the flexibility and the independence to withdraw back across the Danube. Once the Vandals were in North Africa, there was nowhere else for them to go. They couldn't withdraw again. Once the Goths had been settled in southern France, there was really no return back over the frontier. The Huns maintained their power centres north of the Rhine Danube, out of the Roman Empire, and that's a very effective base for these lightning raids, this blitzkrieg kind of warfare into the empire. I was really struck by your saying that the Huns have left as no poetry, no historians. So they are really a blank onto which many images can be projected right up until the present day in, in films and, and literature and all sorts of um, values that have been ascribed to them. The Huns are a blank canvas, and that's what makes them so interesting. We know only one word of Hunnic, the word Strava, the Hunnic for funeral otherwise a collection of proper nouns. We have no Hunnic poetry, we have no Hunnic literature. That means that the story that we get is inevitably one-sided. We know only of the Huns from their archaeology, which is difficult to interpret, and otherwise from the accounts of the people whom they fought and in many cases defeated. That makes Priscus of Panium's nuanced account very important, but it also explains why it's been so easy to hijack the Huns, either as nation builders, as the scourge of God, as the ultimate destroyers. And in a sense, it's led to an imbalance. The Roman Empire was far more destructive 
of the peoples that it conquered in the Mediterranean than the Huns ever were. The most brutal force in the ancient world was the Roman Empire. And of course, we have lost the accounts of many of the people whom the empire conquered. And what we have are the highly sophisticated justifications of empire from the Romans themselves. The Romans believed that they always fought war justly, that they always brought civilization, and that everyone was always better off under Roman imperial rule than they ever had been when they were independent. It's difficult to see the other side of the story. What we don't have is the Huns' own justification for their empire building, for their raiding or plundering. We have no Hun text which talks about the brutality of the Roman Empire. We have no Hun text that perhaps might speak of the Huns as liberators, removing the oppressive imperial yoke of the Romans. All that is lost, which means in some senses that there's a wonderful opportunity for the historian to think about the Huns and to try and recreate Hun society. The downside is that without a Hun voice, it's very easy to mould the Huns into the image that one wants, and hence this wide and conflicting set of images of the Huns. And presumably it means, because of the lack of material evidence, that there will never be any closer way of, get, uh, any way of getting closer to, to the Huns than your book does. It's very difficult to think of what, as it were, could be discovered. There will be no Hun time team in which the locked box which contains the secret history of the Huns is discovered. That seems to be very unlikely. There will, of course, be more archaeological discoveries in Eastern Europe, and these may give us a better idea of where in the Central Asian steppes the Huns came from. I think that the idea that they're originally Mongolian or Chinese, the forerunners of Genghis Khan, is now thought to be a fairly thin idea. But where in the great vastness of the Central Asian steppes we might locate them and how we think of their progress towards Europe and the reasons for that, I think it's reasonable to think that more archaeology might mean that we can offer better answers to those questions. But I don't think that there's going to be some dramatic find that radically alters the view that I've expressed about the Huns' interaction with the Romans in the 4th and 5th centuries. I think that's a done deal, and I think we have to write about the Huns recognising that we do so without a Hun voice to help us. Did your own feelings about Attila as a man, insofar as he is noble at all, did they alter as a result of researching this book? I guess in some ways that I set out rather like Priscus of Panium when he crossed the Danube. I suppose that I thought that I might find in Attila a violent and a brutal barbarian. That seemed to be the tenor of most accounts, ancient and modern. And I hope that I and the book shares something of Priscus's genuine surprise in discovering a different kind of Attila and something of Priscus's intellectual excitement in being able to write a different story and a more complex story about the engagement of the Huns with the decline and fall of the empire. 
I was talking to Christopher Kelly about Attila the Hun, which is out now in paperback. You can find out more about his book and several million others by going to blackwell.co.uk. Thank you for listening to this special classics podcast from Blackwells, and until next time, goodbye.